Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And so we have been spending Christmas as a church family in the city of ancient Ephesus. Uh, We were studying Acts verse by verse. We have been for quite some time. And that led us to when the early Christianity first church started in the city of ancient Ephesus. And really, the city of Ephesus is a city that these are the remains. Like, it's still there. It is the best sort of ancient city in terms of preserved architecture that you can go and visit it. And Acts 18 through 20 sort of talks a lot about the church getting going in Ephesus. Many think that was the most fruitful period of the Apostle Paul's life. He was there over two years. He had a ministry there. Um, First and second Timothy in the New Testament are written to Timothy when he was the pastor at Ephesus. And of course, the letter of Ephesians was a letter in the New Testament written to the Christians at Ephesus. And so we're sort of looking at Ephesus from a few different angles um, over these weeks around Christmas. And I sure hope that you could someday have a chance to visit Ephesus. I have. And I was thinking I've showed a lot of pictures, I know, in this series. Uh, but this might be one of my last ones because once we get further into Acts, I have never been to Italy or any of that. So, but, you know, look, my wife and I got to go and see this ancient city of Ephesus. And it's really neat, I think, when you can see, you know, that this stuff in the Bible is real stuff. Like it's not just Santa Claus and, you know, these kinds of things that we just believe in. It's fun. And like these manger scenes and all this, this is real stuff. These letters, this book of Acts, these places, these are real places. And so it's very, very cool to see that. And something else that is so real is um, college football. And college football is about to come into, you know, the bowl games and everything and the college football playoffs. And so as we prepare our hearts, not only for Christmas, but for that, I wanted to talk for a moment about the patron saint of college football, Tim Tebow. And let me just say, first of all, that I am not a Florida Gator fan and I don't at all really like Tim Tebow. Um, I do love him because he's a brother in Christ, but I don't like him because he's a Florida Gator. It kind of, you know, we were talking earlier, that means I would cry at his funeral, but I'd never want to go on vacation with him, that kind of thing. So, you know, as a Florida State person, it's important to say that. But I wanted to show you the, the Tim Tebow eye black and how in college he would put Bible verses on his eye black. I love saying that. And... Um, You know, it's a really interesting story, and I just want to tell you some of it because, you know, the entire 2008 college football season, he had on his eye black, Philippians 4.13, you know that one, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is, of course, the classic verse for any athlete. And, um, And then, and then, but for the championship game, he switched it up. He switched it up for the college football championship game. He had to get Coach Meyer's permission because Coach Meyer, apparently very superstitious. I've heard this story. And um, he changed it up. You know what he changed it to? He changed it to John 3, 16. To John 3, 16. And, and they won the national championship. And 94 million people Googled John 3, 16 during the game. And it was like this amazing thing. And um, so that's part of the story. But then, you know, after that, so, so far, just two verses, Philippians 4.13, then the championship game, John 3.16, that's the whole season. The next season, he's like, you know, 94 million, this is working. So he starts changing it up every game. 
changing it up, different verses. And um, actually, I looked it up. I looked up every game, the score of every game, the verse for every game. I had a lot of extra time. And I made a Bible reading plan based off of Tebow's Eye Black. And I have several color copies available on the front row this morning. It's a 16-day Bible reading plan for those of you who would like that to get your year off to a good start, okay? Each of those verses you can reflect on. You can look on the score and see, did that one win? You know, most of them are wins. The, um, and it's kind of a joke. I really do have these if you want them, but it's kind of a joke, like we're joking here. But um, here's the thing I wanted to say. In his last game that he ever played, his last game was the Sugar Bowl that they won, and he wore for his last one, you know, it's like the grand finale. He wore Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And we are looking at these verses today, the last college football eye black of Tim Tebow. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting chills. And I've been thinking about this all week. Um, kind of joking, kind of serious, because it is a really good choice. Because, you know, 94 million people, so many people knew this guy. And they're like, Christians equal Tim Tebow. He's a good guy. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a great verse to end with because it really clarifies for people that being a Christian certainly results in someone being a great person. But you don't become a Christian by being a good person. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 really clarifies that. And, you know, it's a letter to the Christians at Ephesus. And we know from our study of Acts that Paul spent time in Ephesus teaching in this hall of Tyrannus. In Acts 18, it talked about that. For two years, he taught every day. You know that he said the words of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that we are saved not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone. You know, he said these words many times to these Christians. But it's no problem for him to then write the same Christians later and write them again and remind them. Why? Because it's utterly foundational for becoming a Christian, for understanding Christianity, and for living as a Christian. And so I want to just study these verses this morning together because in the first century and in the 21st century, our culture, we, even in the church, we get this wrong. And we're being reminded this morning, as we get ready to open gifts, as we consider gifts, we're being reminded of the gift of God, which is his grace. And so let me now just read to you Ephesians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. So we have kind of the whole section as we look at verses 8 through 10 together. But wherever you are this morning, listen, wherever you are in your journey, you are perhaps a longtime Christian. Maybe someone who grew up in church but is not really that into your faith in this season. Maybe not a Christian. Wherever you are, let me just invite you to look at what God is saying from these verses in the Bible to Christians about how they became Christians and what their faith means. So let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Verse 1, And you... We're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So bow with me quickly, I want to pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for powerful uh, sections in the New Testament that just um, dispel any fogginess, any confusion about what it really means to be a Christian, to celebrate Christmas, to say we follow Jesus, to live for God. And so, Lord, we pray that this would land on our hearts and minds this morning in a way perhaps never before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just looking at verses 8 through 10. And let me just say, these verses, I believe, answer two fundamental questions. So that's our outline. If you want to break down the flow of thought as we're looking at these verses, two Big questions. The first one is this. What can I point to or celebrate as the basis of my salvation? Okay? That is a fundamental question for every Christian. And if you're not a Christian, for you to understand as you look in and consider what Christianity is. What can I point to or celebrate? And the next question is, whoa, okay, but what about good works in the Christian life? What about being a good person and good deeds and good works? What about that? We'll come to the second one, second. But first, what should I point to as the basis of my salvation? The answer is this. I must point to, and this comes from verses 8 and 9, grace alone. Grace alone. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. So just consider what this is saying to those Ephesian Christians and to you and me this morning. What should I point to as the basis, the the basis, the thing that I point to and say, I'm saved, I'm a Christian. What should I point to? Grace alone. What is grace? Grace means unmerited favor. It means an unearned blessing or gift from a higher to a lower. It's to be bestowed with grace. When we open gifts for Christmas, when we do that inevitably tonight or tomorrow, when we give gifts, very few of us, probably none of us, will seek to immediately pay people back for the gift they gave us. Hey, thank you so much. What's your uh, Venmo What's your cash app? This is so generous. Let me just pay you back real quick. Who's going to do that tomorrow? Raise your hand. No one. Why? Because you understand 
in your life experience and in your mind that that is not how it works, right? That's not how gifts work. You don't earn it. You didn't earn it. You don't pay for it. You're not going to blurt out, whoa, thank you. I knew I earned this this year. You're not going to say that. And that's why really it is kind of unhelpful, the things like the naughty or nice list or the elf on the shelf or just whatever. But think about it, coal and stockings, all that stuff. But it's fun though. But all of us will open presents and give presents. You will do this and you will show that you do understand how grace works. You will in the area of gift giving. But do we get how grace works with the same level of clarity in the area of our salvation in our Christian life? Such that we point to grace alone as the basis of our salvation. Let's keep looking at the verse. For by grace you have been saved. You see it says, through faith. You've been saved by grace through faith. What exactly does that mean? And then it goes on. And this, do you see the word this? This is not your own doing. What is this referring to? Is it referring to just the grace? Is it referring to just the faith? Is it referring to the grace and faith, the bundle, the two-pack? Like, what's it referring to? And this is not your own doing. Well, that's a good question. That's actually worth thinking about for a moment. Is faith the part we play? Some of us, like, it's not the most unhelpful thing in the world to, to say something like that. Many of us do think that it's that way, and I get it. But is faith the part we play? The ingredient that we bring to the salvation recipe? The one thing we do, is it? Like, is it? According to this verse, would you conclude that? Listen, it says, we're saved by grace through faith. And this, and the this there is referring to all of that. All of that is the gift of God. And that is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Even this passage in Ephesians 2.1, it says, we were dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. They can't comb their hair. Morticians have to do it. What can a dead person do? Can a dead person offer up faith? Can a dead person say, here's my part. I'm bringing my contribution. No, it's all a gift. The grace is a gift. The ability even to have faith, it's all a gift. Philippians 1 says, for it has been, here it is, granted to you that you should believe. So faith, belief, is a grant. It's not the little part we play. It's not our work, right? Yes. So here's some quotes, just helpful sort of quotes. I'll just throw on the screen for you from a famous uh, British pastor, but just want to read these to you from Charles Spurgeon. Faith occupies the position of a channel or a conduit pipe. Grace is the fountain and stream. Faith is the aqueduct alone, which the flood of mercy flows down to refresh the sons of men. Grace is the powerful engine, and faith is the chain by which the carriage of the soul is attached to the great motor's power. Never make a Christ of your faith. Great messages can be sent along slender wires. So these are just some sort of reflections and thoughts on grace and faith and how they really work 
together in our salvation, but most importantly, they are not of ourselves, but a gift of God. You say, well, what is faith then if we're saying what it's not and it's not something we do? Listen, faith is, it's the head, the heart, and the will. Head knowledge, you do have to know. You have to know, you have to have heard and understand who Christ is and what he's done for you and what he's inviting you to do. You do have to know something. It's head knowledge. It's heart belief. I know it, but in my heart, I also believe it. And then it's an action of the will. Head, heart, and will. I don't just know it in my head, and yeah, I believe it in my heart, but I am trusting in it. I'm leaning into these things that I believe in. Now, let's continue in this verse. Grace alone. Do you see how he continues in the second part of verse 8? And then into verse 9, he keeps saying the word not. Do you see it there? How many times? It's there two times. Double negatives. The point is this. Grace is unadulterated. It's not mixed in with anything. Unadulterated, pure. He says, not your own doing. Do you see that in verse 8? Not your own doing. Not your own doing. It is the, do you see it? Gift of God. The word there for gift is the same word in Matthew 2, verse 11. I read it at the beginning of the service. Going into the house, the wise men, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped Jesus. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. The gift. Not your own doing. It is the gift of the Lord. Just picture that. Our salvation is like the Lord is in that picture as the gift giver, and he's offering the gift. We didn't earn it. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift. Unadulterated grace. Look, he says in verse 9, not the result of, what does it say there? Works not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We'll come back to the no one may boast part. But listen, look, I just, just for a moment, look at me for a second, and I, I just want to talk about what this means. Like I, wanna, I want you to really wrestle with what we're seeing in these verses. What does this mean, unadulterated grace? Pointing to grace alone as the basis for salvation. What does that really mean? Let's reckon with that for just a moment. You could live your whole life as an exceptionally moral and good person and not embrace God's grace and receive only the righteous wrath of God for eternity and miss out on heaven. While another person could live their whole life as an exceptionally sinful person, as maybe we would define that, although all are sinful, then at the end of their life, embrace grace and receive only abounding love of God for eternity and go to heaven forever. You got to reckon with that. Grace is a little bit edgy. 
We have a little moral compass inside of our own hearts that can be self-righteous at times that when we really reckon with grace, it's kind of like, oh, okay, for me, but not for them, okay. Let me just even dive into that more. An exceptionally moral person spends your whole life attending church, up every morning reading the Bible, giving a 10% tithe to the church, following the rules, teaching Sunday school, raise your kids in church to be doctors and lawyers, skip vacation for a mission trip, volunteer at a soup kitchen on weekends. Yet apart from a real saving encounter with God's grace, And God would say of those good deeds, Isaiah 64, our righteous acts are as filthy rags before his holiness. And then an exceptionally sinful person could spend their life being irresponsible, abandoning their own kids, rejecting or ruin every second chance someone gives them, struggling with addiction, being unfaithful, in selfishness and greed, causing many others to be unfaithful, steal from them, waste everything, and yet at the end of life, put their trust in this by grace, through faith alone, not by works, and then be saved forever. You say, really? Yes. Luke 23, the thief on the cross. Jesus answered him, the cross next to the cross of Christ. Because this thief was trusting in him only at the end of his life, Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, not because of his life of good works. He's dying for his life of not good works. But because of grace. And so again, I think we just have to reckon with that. We have to actually not just do all the Merry Christmas, hey, going to church, got your Bible, ESV, NASB, like all that stuff. And we have to actually pause and reckon with what grace really is. That you could live your whole life as an exceptionally moral person, miss grace and miss heaven. So what are we pointing to as the basis of our salvation? It must be in the heart of every true Christian. Grace alone. The idea here is that not a trillionth of a percent of our salvation is our own doing. That's the idea. Because we're saved by grace alone, there is not one percent of a trillionth that comes from within us. It's all alien to us, given by God to us and clothed upon us. You know, here's the thing. Think about this. If a trillionth of a percent of your salvation and mine, think about this, came from you, then that little trillionth of a percent would be the difference between you in heaven and someone else not in heaven. And we would take that little trillionth of a percent and we would brag about it. Look at me. I actually, this week, I took the SIM card out of my phone. They're so small. You ever seen how small these are? 
like a trillionth of a percent of my body mass. And I was like, wow, that is so small. That's what we would do, though. We would take something like that. We would say, this is it. This is the thing we're now pointing to. This is the difference maker. The trillionth of a percent that is the difference between me and someone who doesn't have this. Oh, yes, plus the grace of God to be in heaven. We would do that. And that is why verse 9 ends in this way. Do you see it? It says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. We only boast. We only, here it is, point to the grace of God alone. I've heard it said before, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Second question, and this one's shorter, and it covers verse 10. And the question is this, okay, whoa, okay, now that we've really reckoned with grace, I have a question. The question is, well, what about good works in the Christian life? Because it's the natural question, because when you really reckon with and fully understand grace, it almost, say almost, it almost makes it seem like actually being a good person doesn't matter to God at all. And so the natural question that follows is, well, what about good works in the Christian life? What is the proper place of good works in the Christian life? And so the answer is, I am saved by grace to walk in good works. To walk in good works. God does care about that. But he only puts it into the math equation after he's already completely saved you by grace alone through faith alone. So it's not even in the math equation. So look at verse 10. It says, for we are his, do you see, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this word workmanship. We get the word poem from the Greek word here. The idea of the work of a master craftsman. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? We're created in Christ for good works. Are we saved by good works? No. Verse 8 and 9 made that very clear. We are not. Not at all. Are we saved for good works? Yeah, verse 10 does make that clear. So it's a helpful, actually, statement if you're thinking about these things like grace and faith, and works, and how they work together. I'll give you a helpful statement. We're saved not by good works, but we're saved for good works. Christians are saved for good works. God has created us as his special workmanship. And when we think of good works, please don't just think of um, charitable deeds. Don't just think of you know helping that needy person, though certainly do think of that. But good works can include any aspect of living our life to honor the Lord. Any aspect of our life for God. Reading your Bible. Anything. And and here's another helpful statement. We are saved by grace alone. But saving grace, this is what verse 10 makes clear. Saving grace, genuine saving grace in a believer's life is never alone for long. That's sometimes how you can test to see if it's real. 
if a person has indeed encountered saving grace. James 2 puts it this way, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. When there is faith in that genuine grace of God, and that's really active in a Christian's life, while we are saved by that grace alone, it will not remain alone, but it will become adorned with and accompanied by beautiful character change, heart change, life change, good works. That is the truth. Look at verse 10. It says, which God, verse 10 in the second part, it says, which God prepared when? Beforehand. God's planned ahead. He's planned the lives of his people in advance. Now, now, quickly and carefully, what does this mean? Does this mean that every good work that you're going to do in your life is a little unique snowflake? God has made it just like he makes every snowflake different from the other. And it is your job as an individual Christian to find the unique snowflake sort of combination of good works that God has uniquely prepared in advance for you. You're to, you're to be pretty stressed out finding them because you don't want to find someone else's good work that he uniquely prepared for someone else to do and accidentally do them and then they can't do theirs and you don't want to mess it up. So it's kind of stressful. But you got to find the dot. you got to find his perfect good works planned for you in advance. Is that what it's saying? No. And here's how we know. Because this is not an individual passage. This is not an individual passage. What does it say? Look at verse 10. For we. We. He's talking to the church. We. Every church is his workmanship. Every people of God, the community of the people of God are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. I don't mean to be like condescending or like weird toward like God has a unique plan for our lives. He does clearly for every person individually. And I'm not trying to dismiss that. I'm just saying this verse isn't emphasizing that as we often maybe sometimes might think. This verse is not intended to stress us out and make us think, am I on the dot? Am I doing the good works that he prepared for me? It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be a blessing to us to help us understand how the Christian life really works, that we're to walk in these good works that God has created for us. So what do we point to as the basis for our salvation? Grace alone. What about good works? Well, we say, well, okay, yeah, that is important. I'm saved by grace alone. But it is to walk in these good works. I'll read you a quote. This is just some Christian wisdom from a seasoned saint. He says, when you get a person who really puts a premium on morality, he almost inevitably falls into the pit of self-salvation. And on the other hand, when a person sees the principle of grace, he has a built-in temptation to go lawless. But the Christian religion, while it preaches pure grace, unadulterated grace, with no meritorious contribution from us, whatever, at the same time, requires of us the loftiest conceivable conduct. 
You cannot for one solitary moment say anything other than nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We are justified by faith alone, but we are not justified by faith that is alone. Therefore, if you really cling to that cross, if you really do what you say you do, you will be abounding in the works of the Lord and will be living out an exceptional pattern of behavior. It's a great quote. And as we close and, and sing together and go into the rest of this Christmas Eve day, let me just draw your attention to one last part about this verse 10. Do you see, when it's talking about these good works, it doesn't say we work in them. It doesn't say we run in them. What does it say? We walk in them. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden walked with the Lord. Just like Jesus called his disciples as he walked by them. Come on, follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God invites us, all of us, He wants to save us by his grace alone. And he wants us to walk with him in the good works that he's created for us. And so let me close us in prayer and ask the worship team to come back and lead us in responding to God's grace this morning.